providing clear, unambiguous messaging about certain health issues has sure gotten a lot more complicated these days. In the U.S., there's still a very public argument going on among experts about the frequency and benefits of mammography screening for breast cancer, depending on age and other factors, and what constitutes ideal blood pressure control at what age and when to initiate treatment to lower it is causing quite a stir. I'm sure you've heard. Just the same every day in the U.S. and around the world, millions are having their blood pressure checked, and if the readings are high or consistently high, there needs to be a coherent discussion about next steps. We like to make sense of things at IHI, and that's what we'll try to do on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, coming to you live bi-weekly, and also for later listening and convenience via IHI.org. And on, excuse me, iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So newly recommended guidelines for managing hypertension among adults hit the pages of the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, in December, and the reverberations are still going on. Several prominent organizations and initiatives have decided they're not changing a thing, not just yet, but where there's disagreement, there's also opportunity, and navigating Navigating the information and helping doctors and patients reach decisions based not only on guidelines but on overall cardiovascular risk, the side effects of blood pressure medications and life preferences need to be top priority. If you like to tweet, you can uh, and would include the hashtag IHI or our handle at the IHI in your tweets. That way we can bring even a larger community in this discussion. And I also want to, uh, John mentioned a download link he's going to provide for all the slides we'll share with you today. We try to strike a balance on WIHI. It's not a PowerPoint-driven program. However, we do recognize that some slides for your reference, and especially for your later review, uh, do um, uh, can be be very, very helpful to you. So we hope that you can appreciate that and understand that we do move along on WIHI fairly quickly and uh, can't pause uh, as much as we might want in another kind of seminar or on each slide, but we do understand that those can be helpful. So I'm going to now briefly introduce our guests and a reminder that longer bios about all of them are on our web pages as well as I'm sure if you Google any of them, uh, you'll find all kinds of good stuff as well. Um, so let me start off. Uh, Dr. Craig Robbins is with us. He's been a family physician with the Colorado Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, since July of 1998. At KP Colorado, he's the medical director for clinical guidelines. And at the KP national level, Craig Robbins serves as the medical director of the Center for Clinical Information Services. Welcome, Craig. Thank you, Madge. Great that you're here. Peter Bash is a practicing general internist in Washington, D.C., and the medical director for Ambulatory EHR and Health IT Policy for MedStar Health. He is the current chair of the Medical Informatics Committee for the American College of Physicians. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Terrific. And Eric Peterson is with us. He's the Fred Cobb Distinguished Professor of Medicine in the Division of Cardiology, a Duke Med Scholar, and the Executive Director of the Duke Clinical Research Institute. He is also a contributing editor to JAMA and co-authored a JAMA editorial that ran in the December issue uh, that included the blood pressure guidelines. That's the reason we're here today. Welcome, Eric. Happy to participate. All right. And last but never least, right across from me is our own Dr. Don Goldman. He's IHI's Chief Medical and Scientific Officer. Among many things that Don does, he works on strengthening ties between IHI and the health services research and academic communities. So the first question, uh, first, again, welcome everyone. We're going to get going because we got a lot of ground to cover, and we do hope you'll ask good questions. Uh, feel free to chat as we go along, but the Q&A section begins in the second half of the show. So, Don, uh, it's pretty easy for us to get pulled in many directions with this issue of guidelines. Uh, we've experienced that as we've been talking about it with our guests uh, here today and uh, here at IHI. There's so much at stake. So how do we avoid the temptation to take to our respective scientific corners and really almost come together for some larger goal? 
Well, you know, I, I don't think we're going to be able to totally do that, Madge. Uh, come on, that's the nature of <laughs> academic science. There are going to be people that have their reputations, right. their studies, and uh, I guess you could call it their corners. Uh, but I think if we keep in mind uh, the fact that we're really trying to improve the health uh, of the patients that we uh, take care of and to uh, make sure they get the treatment that's right for them, uh, I think we'll be okay. Uh, it, we have to remember that in the United States today, the rate of even screening for hypertension is pretty pathetic. I mean, we have so such a long way to go to even screen uh, folks uh, for hypertension. And having been screened, we know that uh, an enormous number of people uh, are not getting uh, their blood pressure under control. So I think we can all get together on that. All right. So I'd love you to do um, just a little bit of framing about what we're doing here. Why? I mean, we are, first of all, um, if I didn't say this, I probably should have for sure. This is a new collaboration that we're doing with the Journal of the American Medical Association, and we're thrilled and want to thank JAMA editors for all their help with this. Um, we chose this article, all of us together, as one to tee up for further discussion and to kind of migrate it over from the pages of JAMA to the improvement community and those who are dealing with patients about blood pressure. Um, what are some ways just to help set up um, our panel today, Don? Yeah, I have some views on, on, on this, as will become evident, and so I, I might as well get some of the issues that are on my mind uh, out there. Uh, first, uh, I, I would like to thank JAMA for uh, uh, collaborating on this because uh, <coughs> many papers are published in JAMA that have profound implications for how we practice uh, and what our policies are in the United States and, and even uh, worldwide. So it's a great issue. It's a good, edgy, meaty issue to discuss. Uh, first, I just want to note that uh, even in the areas of hypertension and cardiovascular disease in general, where we have scores and scores of randomized control trial with many, many, many thousands of patients involved, the evidence on what to do remains uh, incomplete. Uh, the uh, RCTs we have, the randomized control trials, many of them don't even include the older patients in whom we're going to be focusing uh, today. So uh, there are enormous gaps in the evidence that uh, people who write the guidelines uh, need to struggle with. And, and that's in part why so many guidelines have a healthy dose of expert opinion. And Madge, that's where people tend to get in their corners when you're dealing with expert opinion uh, and, and the evidence isn't crystal clear. But more importantly, perhaps, even research researchers and epidemiologists, and I'm one of them, uh, find it very difficult to sort through the evidence and figure out what's best for individual patients uh, who we're taking uh, care of. For example, I spent a lot of time studying the data and the guidelines for the use of hormone replacement uh, therapy because a number of uh, uh, female friends and colleagues asked me my opinion about that in postmenopausal uh, years. And I, frankly, having studied and studied, find it incredibly difficult to understand all of the nuances of the guidelines, let alone to explain it to my friends and, and colleagues. And boy, does that take time. I, I can only sympathize with an overwhelmed primary care physician or a nurse who's trying to have a balanced conversation about the evidence with his or her patient, explain the risks and benefits uh, in a way that the patient uh, can understand. That, that takes a lot of time. And, and remember, uh, this is largely, or at least to some extent, a discussion about probability, probability of complications, probability uh, that the medicine will work, probability that that will then avoid uh, stroke and, and heart attack. Uh, most high school students in the United States really don't understand probability. It's not taught. Uh, I once asked somebody, and uh, gosh, I hope they don't hear this, at Harvard College, do you think the students in my class are going to have a good grasp of probability? And, and I was told, don't count on it. So you can imagine these are difficult uh, conversations. And we haven't even begun to deal with the heart of this. The patient's the family's individual preferences, their circumstances, the context. I mean, what if you have before you a, a black patient 
where we know the risk is high, where where we really want to get on top of stuff, but they come to the conversation with certain historical memories about uh, what medicine meant uh, to them, uh, and we come with certain uh, subconscious stereotypes that tend to influence our thinking. So this is really tough work, takes time, and I hope we'll get into some of that today. All right. Thank you very much, Don Goldman uh, from IHI. Eric Peterson, let me turn to you, and I think what I want to say, thinking a little bit about Don's remarks, I hope um, this program today will be helpful. We're going to unpack in some ways, this world around guidelines and its implications. Um, There are plenty of further discussions uh, that we can have about this topic uh, in terms of, um, you know, real nitty-gritty stuff of working with patients on uh, what is commonly referred to as shared decision-making. So uh, bear with us as we also try and understand what happens when guidelines come out and we're trying to integrate them into the real world. So thanks, Don. Eric, in the uh, Peterson, in the editorial you co-authored in JAMA, with respect to the new hypertension recommendations, you asked the question, or the title of the editorial, What Are the Right Goals and Purposes? Uh, which made me wonder, what were the questions the panel charged with reviewing the existing guidelines? Which, what were they trying to answer? Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much. And also thanks to IHI and uh, Don uh, for his opening comments. Um, it is exactly what um, JAMA wants to do, is to, in part, uh, take what is discovered in science and now taking it down to the level of how do we apply it to our patients ultimately to get the best outcomes. So these types of shows are, are incredibly important, and we are highly supportive of them. In this case, we're addressing a remarkably important issue for America. One in three uh, adults in the U.S. have high blood pressure, and how we should treat it should be ultimately a very important question. It is one of our most modifiable cardiac risk factors. Uh, Changing and controlling blood pressure can result in uh, significantly improved outcomes. So we as physicians treating these patients and patients who have the disease uh, ought to be knowledgeable about what works in terms of how low should we go with blood pressure. In this case, uh, the question asked uh, was there were guidelines put out about a decade ago uh, that describe uh, how blood pressure ought to be treated. They were put together by a scientific panel of uh, many disciplines uh, put together by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, or NHLBI. For various reasons, uh, now it had been a a decade had passed, a series of new studies had come out, and we were ready for the next update uh, for these guidelines. In this case, however, uh, that took quite a period of time, and ultimately the NHLBI said that they were going to get out of the guidelines business, but this had happened after the JNC-8, which is the group who put out this paper, had already come up with their summary of the latest evidence. The main question they were answering was how low to go with blood pressure, and they divided that question into those over age 60 and under age 60. In older individuals, they did find a couple of studies, I'll bet uh, relatively small and short in duration, that showed that, in fact, uh, taking blood pressure down to 140, uh, systolic blood pressure, the current uh, standard, uh, was not uh, shown to be more effective than a more lenient standard of uh, blood pressure of one below 150. Uh, in younger patients, there was actually no studies. So faced with this uh, limited bits of information in both younger and older populations, the guidelines committees elected to make a new standard. In this case, uh, on those over age uh, 60, um, they moved the guideline to a more lenient standard of uh, just get blood pressures below, uh, treat to a target goal of 150 or below. And then in younger populations, they left uh, the target still at 140 and below. All right, so let me ask you this. Um, what would be, to your mind, um, a kind of a forward-looking way to view this application? I, I suspect that you weren't the least bit surprised by some of the reaction. Um, and um, what, so what, what's the meaning of that? Because I think as this sails through the healthcare community and out to the public, um, it, it causes as much confusion as interest, maybe more confusion. Right. And I would say there's sort of two different camps. There's a scientific uh, part of this debate, which is kind of interesting. How do we deal in a world where we don't have all the evidence we need? What do we conclude? So that's a very uh, interesting one for the science and uh, uh 
physician crowd to debate. Perhaps the more important one is uh, what we were sort of getting at is how will these ultimately be used? In the current world, uh, these are put into performance measures and physicians are held accountable to reaching these goals. So if you make the guideline, uh, everybody who has high blood pressure should get their uh, blood pressures below 140 over 90, then the potential risk factor of that is that uh, perhaps some older individuals uh, might uh, be more aggressively treated uh, to the point where they even get dizzy and have falls and side effects from the medication. So that's the potential risk. On the other hand, one could say even with those current guidelines, up to half or more of the population fails to reach that goal. So if anything, we're sort of like the speed limits. We allow individuals um, to uh, sort of, if the speed limit set at 60, everybody drives at 70. So maybe leaving them where they would be uh, was okay and just try to get everybody in that general uh, ballpark. And that's kind of where the internist treating patients in their clinic or the patient who's trying to get an idea of exactly where I need to get to is confused. All right. Thank you very much, Eric. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions. Um, we're going to move along now and turn to Craig Robbins. And I was thinking you have the enviable or unenviable job of keeping careful track of uh, shifts and guidelines and then making recommendations to clinicians in a very, very large system, Kaiser Permanente. So tell us about that process and where things stand right now with respect to the hypertension guidelines uh, that were issued in JAMA in December. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks so much again, Madge, for the opportunity to participate today. Um, <clears throat> Kaiser Permanente is the largest integrated um, healthcare delivery system in the U.S., and we, um, you know, we start from a social mission of wanting to deliver high-quality, affordable care to our members in their communities. And on the map that's on the slide on the screen now, you can kind of see the areas where we are. Our largest presence is in the California regions. Um, but we have over 9 million patients. And what we would like to do across our system is try to um, try to make sure that we're delivering reliable, high-quality care and doing that in a standardized way so that we really do kind of present um, kind of one Kaiser Permanente, whether you're in California or Hawaii or Colorado. So one of the ways that we try to do that is with a national guideline program. We've been doing guidelines in... Kaiser for 20 plus years, and we've been doing them um, kind of in collaboration across our various regions for the last 10 plus years. Our national guideline program really seeks to provide the organization with evidence-based clinical recommendations. Um, it's it's meant to um, you know support our quest to deliver high quality care, and the hope is that when we implement these guidelines across the program, we can reduce unwarranted variation in care, and we can improve clinical outcomes for. Um, for our members and patients. So that's that's the intent of the program. Um, we cover at the interregional or national level um, a handful of um, pretty significant disease states and then also cancer screening and prevention issues, um, and <clears throat> those are being displayed right now. But certainly the cardiovascular disease risk reduction arena is one that's been very important to us. Um, we have guidelines around coronary artery disease, really secondary prevention of coronary artery disease, diabetes, dyslipidemia, and hypertension. And we have a few ways that we reach um, a, a national guideline in across Kaiser Permanente. One of those ways is to adopt um, high-quality guidelines, guidelines that have been put together with rigorous methods um, from other organizations and to say that we're going to use them across Kaiser. Um, in terms of hypertension specifically, we actually had the good fortune of having our lead clinician, Dr. Joel Handler from Southern California, um, serve as a panelist on JNC8. So we're certainly at this point um, very close to, uh, to considering whether we're going to formally adopt this as our national guideline to be used across Kaiser Permanente. Our basic guideline methodology um, is uh, we've adopted a methodology called GRADE. GRADE has been put together by folks at McMaster University in Canada and has been um, adopted by several guideline developing organizations around the world. Um, <clears throat> uh, several groups like NICE in England and SIGN in Scotland and, and other places have agreed to the general kind of approach that GRADE takes. 
And what GRADE recommends that we do is that we divide the guideline development process into two steps. The first step is to declare clinical questions and then to assess the evidence that we have to speak to those clinical questions. So it involves undertaking a systematic review of the evidence, one where um, you know we don't just cherry pick the studies that agree with our point of view, but where we look broadly at the evidence that seeks to answer a question. And depending on the type of evidence that we have there, um, we can rate the quality of the evidence that's available. And one thing I'd like to point out to people here is that the best the evidence can do for us is give us um, kind of higher or lower confidence in treatment effects and the estimated treatment effects that we're finding in the studies. It doesn't necessarily tell us what we should do in a given situation, either across a population or with an individual patient. So that first step in the process, we find out what the evidence is that speaks to the questions that we have. And then the second step in the process is to think across a few other domains to look at kind of our best estimate of the balance of benefits and harms, to look at how patient values and preferences might play out um, both across populations with individuals and to think also about resource implications. So you write a recommendation based on the quality of the evidence and these other, these other factors, if you will. Um, so we adopted this guideline development methodology uh, three years ago and have been working with it over the last three years. We do some systematic reviews ourselves, but a lot of times we look at the systematic reviews that get produced by other groups like the evidence-based practice centers under ARC and like the Cochrane Collaboration. Um, we use those as sort of the basis for the recommendations we're going to write. But there is kind of a mantra in the guideline development world right now that says to globalize the evidence but localize the recommendation. And what that means is that we can probably get a lot of um, kind of academic and scientifically minded physicians on the same page about um, how you combine research studies and put them into systematic review and agree on whether that was done well and what the um, you know, what the estimated treatment effect would be. But there are going to be local and regional variations in terms of how you weigh those other factors, the balance between desirable and undesirable effects, the values and preferences, the resource use and costs. And that's um, across the, the variation across those other domains is why we do some Kaiser Permanente um, guideline development ourselves and don't always just point to other things that have been created by other folks. And all of this aligns with um, reports that came out from the Institute of Medicine back in 2011, um, a report on systematic reviews called Finding What Works in Healthcare, and then a companion report called Clinical Practice Guidelines We Can Trust. And the Institute of Medicine Clinical Practice Guidelines standards went across eight domains that, that are being shown on the screen right now. Um, but these are the types of things you want to look for in a guideline developing body to give you more confidence in the process that they follow um, in terms of things like managing conflicts of interest, making sure that there is um, a connection between the systematic reviews, the underlying evidence, and the clinical practice guideline recommendations that get written, and that, um, that there is a plan for external review and updating. So those are the types of things that we look at um, when we're exploring whether to use somebody else's guideline. And we certainly would look at JNC8 and say, from a process standpoint, they went about things um, the right way uh, when they started with NHLBI and declaring clinical questions, having um, high-quality systematic reviews performed to do that, and use that as the basis for writing the recommendations. I think everybody's aware that there were some political things that happened when NHLBI decided to get out of the guideline business, but, um, but the JNC8 panelists certainly seem to have held true to, you know, kind of a high-quality process. So, again, our bottom line is that we um, think pretty highly of this guideline and we'll be deciding in the next week or two whether to formally, um, you know, adopt it for use across Kaiser Permanente. 
Wow. Thank you, Craig. Very uh, thorough. Really appreciate it. And a reminder, if anybody has joined the program today by audio only and you're actually not looking at a computer screen, you can email info at IHI.org and they'll they'll send you uh, some of the slides that are being referenced today. So thank you, Craig. All right, Peter Bosch, let's turn to you. Um, interesting to have you part of the show um, in our planning conversation. Uh, you made a lot of really interesting points that I'm sure you're going to tee up for us. Um, you kind of are looking at this, I think, both in terms of uh, your actual practice with patients and also um, putting all this in some perspective. So take it away. Thanks, Peter. Okay, and thank you, Madge, and again, um, thanks for having me today as part of the panel. So I'm going to look at this slightly differently, as you suggested. I would agree that the release of the new guidelines for treating hypertension has stimulated a lot of discussion and some confusion, and for health systems and large practices, not just Kaiser, obviously, who have guideline committees, I'm sure there are hundreds, if not thousands, of conversations that have been occurring since December as to what their new standard of care would be, will be for hypertension. Uh, that said, in my opinion, the significance of the guideline change for patient care is not in the change, but in the light that this change is shining on the status quo, meaning what I see is a lack of attention to prior guidelines. Let me explain. Uh, in addition to being a practicing internist in Washington, D.C., I'm the medical director for the outpatient electronic medical record system for MedStar Health. And as you can see on our first slide, in um, 2012, MedStar became the first large health system partner with the National Million Hearts Initiative, a program of education and primary prevention premised on the notion that more consistent attention to four dimensions of cardiovascular risk, appropriate use of aspirin, blood pressure screening and control, cholesterol screening and control, and smoking cessation, the so-called ABCs of cardiovascular risk reduction, can prevent one million new heart attacks and strokes over five years. As you can see on the second slide, the ask is not of perfection, just doing better. And how hard is it to just do better? In my opinion, harder than it should be. When JNC1 was released in 1976, the rate of control of hypertension was 10%. And with only small changes to treatment guidelines, but the same definition of control or approximately the same definition of control since 1976, the rate of control was only 34% 25 years later. And this apparent lack of attention to JNCs 1 through 6 was in large part the rationale for JNC7's approach to simpler treatment guidelines. Did that work? Well, perhaps to some extent, uh, as the rate of blood pressure control rose to 46% in 2012, nine years into JNC7. Turning to the next slide, we can gain a new insight into why more than half of patients, 54%, uh, meaning 36 million adults with hypertension remain uncontrolled. And in my view, it does not appear to be guideline confusion. After nearly 40 years of national guidelines and public health campaigns, 14 million patients with uncontrolled hypertension were still unaware of their condition. And of the 22 million who were aware that their blood pressure was out of control, they were either untreated or inadequately treated. It would be easy to excuse this on lack of care or lack of access to care, but that would be wrong. Uh, turning to the next slide, uh, we see another um, um, in interesting bit of information. The vast majority of those with uncontrolled hypertension had health insurance, had a usual source of care, and had been to their regular doctor two or more times in the prior calendar year. And turning to my last slide, if you would. So what was and continues to be the problem? In my opinion, it's not that JNC7 was too complicated to follow or that science again prevailed in December of 2013 where randomized controlled trial analysis led to JNC8. In my opinion, there have been and remain two problems. The first one is lack of awareness. This should have disappeared years ago, but it hasn't. Its cause is not guideline change or complexity, and its solution will be found in a consistent change in practice. In my view, no patient should ever leave their doctor's office without knowing their blood pressure or their goal, and for those with hypertension, if they're at goal, and if not, create a shared plan for getting there. The second problem, lack of attention and focus, 
which also has nothing to do with a specific guideline or treatment threshold, is more difficult to fix. While there are clear best practices about obtaining and trusting a blood pressure reading, that advice is not uniformly followed. Instead, what we see is many doctors taking a single reading, and if they see, see that it's unacceptable, they're very quick to dismiss it as an aberration, such as, oh, maybe you were stressed out today or forgot to take your pill, or maybe it's just a Friday. And this, in my view, leads to uh, physicians and patients dismissing single readings. So universal adoption of recommended procedures to get an accurate blood pressure reading, such as with a calibrated and high-quality automated blood pressure device, should instill a trust in a blood pressure reading and thus remove this as a barrier to consistent attention and focus on blood pressure control. All right. Well, very. Um, can you all tell how succinct our guests are in trying to boil down very uh, complex information into some very, very crisp uh, takeaways? So I want to thank uh, Peter, Eric, and Craig, and uh, we're going to get into all of this more in discussion. I'm going to just uh, fly over here to Don G. Goldman for just a second, then we're going to open it up to your questions and comments. Yeah, it's always easiest to pick on the last speaker, so I'll pick on the last speaker, Peter. Uh, so uh, I, I totally agree with you that this dismissing of the single uh, blood pressure is a problem. On the other hand, uh, getting the right uh, equipment to measure blood pressure correctly and even more important, perhaps having the patient monitor blood pressure at home to get consistent reading, that's more work. I mean, I, I'm one who went in and my blood pressure would just meet the new guidelines, actually. Uh, but going home and monitoring it myself was pretty consistently well below that. So uh, that seems to be a challenge. And secondly, uh, I, I don't know any data on this, but I imagine that more Americans know about the purple pill than know about your concern about their blood pressure. So are we doing everything we need to do or can do to engage the public and increase awareness? A Million Hearts is a campaign, is that, uh, do you think... Uh, uh, maximally leveraging what we know about uh, modern advertising and media. Just uh, love your views on those. Uh, great questions, uh, Don, and thanks for picking on me first. Uh, but uh, seriously, uh, it, th these are great questions. Uh, I think uh, there has been a lot more attention uh, to blood pressure, although I can certainly remember uh, going back many years ago when there were public health campaigns on blood pressure, starting with what was called the silent killer. Uh, I, I think, unfortunately, uh, and I think uh, uh, that uh, physicians are uh, as much to blame as others, uh, it still hasn't reached the level of awareness that people will take it as seriously as perhaps uh, uh, other conditions. I think what you um, 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 mentioned as taking a blood pressure reading in a doctor's office and then checking some at home and seeing that there was a bit of difference, I think also uh, creates a barrier to action. And I think in, in um, educating uh, clinicians and patients about blood pressure, and hopefully clinicians know this, there, there, if not, uh, if this doesn't exist already, there should be an understanding that blood pressure is a range. We don't expect it to be uh, the same at all times of day. And in fact, if a patient came to me with the same reading, um, you know, maybe 30 times during a month or 10 times during the same day, my advice would be to throw out that blood pressure cuff. So, so uh, training uh, physicians, uh, staff, and patients in how to take a blood pressure and understanding that it should be within a particular range through the day is a key to trusting readings. I think that while it would certainly be ideal for everybody to have a uh, high-quality and regularly calibrated automated blood pressure cuff that checks uh, three readings and then presents an average would be ideal. We don't need to start with that to start taking our blood pressure readings more seriously. Uh, as a last comment, it came to me as an interesting corollary that the problem that we have with blood pressure and, and uh, dismissing readings as being aberrations uh, was uh, certainly part of uh, uh, my practice and many internists' practice back in the days where diabetes control was based on looking at um, random blood sugars and making some assumptions about what time of day they were collected, if the patient ate or not, and so forth. Uh, with the advent of the hemoglobin A1C test, which presents uh, a, a better picture of the last three months of glycemic control, physicians now have a, uh, or have had since its uh, 
it, it came into clinical practice, a much more reliable test of saying, here's what it is, and if a patient says, well, my sugar today is 80 and their A1C is way out of range, uh, we know that what we're seeing today is a good blood sugar is an aberration. So we don't quite have that yet in blood pressure, but I don't believe we have to wait till we have something uh, uh, that good before we take this more seriously. Okay, thanks a lot, uh, Peter and uh, Don, uh, for teeing up uh, the question. Uh, I do, we, uh, John. I, I am going to have. I, I don't want to cheat the audience out of your time, but Eric uh, and/or Craig, is there anything quickly either one of you want to say uh, uh, in in reference to uh, just the the most recent remarks? Otherwise, we can go to Q and A. Eric. Yeah, no, I think the points uh, raised by Peter were excellent. Um, this is a tough chronic disease in that it's one that the symptoms are not manifest until uh, one has a stroke or heart attack or heart failure. So it, it is something you have to do in a preventative fashion. And for all of us as, as humans, that's a tough, tough job. The best way to get... Uh, get involved with that is to actually get your partnership with your patient, uh, get them engaged in the game, have them understand why it's important to treat this over a lifetime, and then ultimately work with them to both monitor the disease and find the right recipe for them. Thank you. Craig, any quick comments? Yeah, the only other thing that I would add, Madge, is that what we are trying to balance here is the fact that hypertension really is a precondition without symptoms. And we have people walking around feeling well, and there's the potential that actually our medicines could do more harm than good, which is a part of the caution in JNC8, especially with the elder population, that we may be driving blood pressures too low and causing problems um, that, that we don't always recognize. We tend to kind of focus on the benefits and not always think about the potential harm. So okay. we always want to try to find that right balance, both for populations and for individual patients. Thank you. All right, uh, John, you want to remind uh, us? All right, John is... Uh, I'm going to remind you about chat. Uh, uh, John is off mic here. <laughs> We've got we're, we're sitting a little differently uh, today, so um, I think everyone has got it. There is that lovely uh, chat button up on the top of your screen. Uh, please use that one, not the Q and A one. And please chat to all participants. Uh, if you chat to John Gothier, admin only, he's just going to throw it right into all participants. Uh, we want to see all of your questions. Questions. So thank you all very much. All right, I'm going to ask um, one question that's come up right away is about medication adherence. And uh, that as uh, maybe hidden and not so hidden. In fact, it seems to often be talked about, uh, you know, almost the most, you know, sometimes, uh, unfortunately, in a little bit of a blame culture on uh, patients. Who would like to kind of take uh, that one up in terms of uh, wherever uh, the recommended guidelines might land um, if you're on medication. Um, some of the challenges right now with medication adherence. Anybody? I might take a first shot. This is Eric. Okay. Um, I just was at a two-day meeting at AHRQ where we were reviewing all that is sort of known about med adherence and where we're trying to go in this field. Um, you're right. It's a remarkably important uh, issue. We need to take uh, medicines to treat this disorder often uh, to control high blood pressure, and that will be for um, for many of us uh, most of a lifetime unless uh, weight or other things change. Um, that typically is what happens here, and those medications are not easy to take on a daily fashion, particularly when uh, there aren't symptoms prompting you to do it. The, the, again, the game here is not blame, um, and we've, we've now moved to a concept of sort of shared accountability. Um, it's in part a partnership between a, a caregiver, a provider, as well as uh, the patient to work together to, to uh, control, in this case, blood pressure. Um, the patient plays a, a remarkably vital role in, in this case in that they can actually monitor their own blood pressures at home and see uh, how well they're being controlled and even at times uh, find a, a direct feedback loop. If they don't take their medicines that day, their blood pressure is high, um, then that correlates pretty clearly and becomes the uh, impetus and reminder to, to better control blood pressure. And Just if like I could uh, um, join that answer. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's okay. Peter, you go and, and then Craig. Go ahead. Uh-huh. Okay, if I could join into that answer as well. Uh, and, and this is a complicated problem, but not one that I don't think we can't tackle now. Uh, I think one issue is 
uh, lack of understanding. And, and uh, I would say from my experience and, and practice, I would love to say I've never had this happen. A patient comes back for a follow-up, and I see their blood pressure is still elevated, and um, I might ask them how they're feeling, chest pain, shortness of breath, and at some point get around to um, are you taking your medication every day and get a, a kind of a puzzled look, say, well, you gave me a prescription for 30 pills, so I assume when the 30 were done, my hypertension was cured. Um, I, fortunately, that doesn't happen very often, but I think that when doctors give prescriptions, uh, it's very important, particularly for chronic conditions where more than one medication is essential to take, that there's a clear understanding as to why the medication is needed. I also think that it has to be worked into uh, uh, regular um, uh, follow-up visits uh, about questions about are you taking your medications or even asking it differently. How many days this week did you take your medication? Because that frames it in a non-pejorative way and makes uh, it more possible for a patient to talk about adherence problems or problems with uh, um, side effects. And the last comment I wanted to make on that is we, I think we have some learnings from other fields as to uh, how perhaps to make this uh, easier for patients to follow. For a patient who doesn't feel well when their blood pressure is up, they do have that feedback loop of, oh, I'm not feeling well, oh, I forgot to take my medication. For most patients, they feel fine until their blood pressure is high enough to cause serious immediate damage. So certainly one idea that I think more um, physicians are doing is uh, doing what um, some people do with um, uh, devices that measure exercise. And a lot of people wear these little devices on their belt to remind them yeah. of the number of steps that they should get each day and what they didn't get, and they don't necessarily feel it. They look at their device and they might say, oh, I got another thousand steps to go. Uh, making self-monitoring of blood pressure part of a treatment plan is, I think, more reinforcing for a uh, uh, condition that has, uh, uh, for most of the time, no symptoms. So this way patients can see in between visits, how am I doing? Mm -hmm. Craig, what did you want to uh, add to that? And by the way, I just want to throw in here in case anybody wants to pick up. Somebody has asked or said in the chat, Beverly, um, can you speak to the fact that there are many medicines for mild to moderate high blood pressure, but actually very few for moderate to severe, which is where many of the uncontrolled population is. So um, that may be a huge uh, topic, uh, but uh, Craig, if, <laughs> if, if you could combine whatever you were going to say to that, or, or, or we'll have somebody else take it up. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I actually uh, didn't have anything to add now to the, the comments that Eric and Peter had on adherence. Uh, Metadherence is um, is certainly a challenge on that issue of um, <clears throat> kind of medications and what do you do with the more severe population. This this is another um, example of where our evidence base can only take us so far. Um, that most of what we have in the hypertension um, research space is, you know, one drug against either placebo or a drug against drug. And there really, um, there really aren't many studies of what do you do when somebody doesn't respond to a given drug. And, you know, if you escalate the dose, do you take a stair-step approach and put patients on a second or a third or even a fourth drug if necessary? Um, at Kaiser Permanente for the last uh, four or five years, we actually have taken this step of extrapolating beyond that available evidence base to create a stepwise approach that we think makes sense based on what we know about the individual classes of drugs working from diuretics, diuretics in combination with ACE inhibitors, adding calcium channel blockers next, um, possibly beta blockers after that if needed. Um, but it is it, it does just speak to the challenge here that a lot of times we're having to take what's known in the research literature, extrapolate beyond that, and try to do what's best by the patient that we have in front of us. Thanks. Yeah, I this is Eric. I, I'd just ahead. like to add a couple comments yep. to that. Go ahead. Um, the first of which is um, with regards to the treatment for high blood pressure, um, we actually are, while there hasn't been a whole lot of new things coming out in recent years, we have a lot of different classes of drugs. And when used in combination, actually there are relatively few patients that can't have their blood pressure controlled with the number of drugs we have now used in, in proper combination. 
in a recent study where they tried to, to find patients to fall into this sort of experimental therapies for high and resistant hypertension, they were actually remarkably hard-pressed to find those patients. If you push, uh, you know, using the right combinations of medicines and in, in right uh, doses, over 90-some percent, uh, it's even higher in some series, of uh, people with high blood pressure will actually be able to be controlled. There are some still unfortunate individuals who have resistant, but, but it's relatively uncommon, uh, which then gets us back to the idea of personalization of therapy, which I think extends both to the ideas of what blood pressure medicines to use, but also to the question of adherence that you raised earlier. In a recent uh, opinion piece in JAMA, um, Hayden Bosworth, myself, and, and others uh, discussed the idea of developing, there is no one right fix for questions of adherence problems. It depends on, in part, what's motivating it. Is it a knowledge issue? Is it an ability to afford the medications? Is it a self-monitoring? Is it a remembering? There are various answers for each and every one of those, and we, in part, need to personalize how to help an individual uh, continue to adhere to their medications and treatment regimens over a lifetime. Thanks. I'm going to ask uh, um, very much, Eric. I'm going to ask Don to jump in on an interesting comment that uh, Stephen Martin has brought up. Well, right. Uh, he raised uh, an international perspective. Uh, I think sometimes in the United States we forget the rest of the world uh, has opinions too. Uh, and he's noting, and I don't know the evidence myself, but he's noting that there are some real differences in recommendations about mild uh, hypertension from, uh, let's say, uh, Nice uh, in uh, the UK or in Canada. Uh, is there, in fact, that kind of diversity of opinion uh, based on the same uh, evidence? I, I know I once saw a meta-analysis of meta-analyses that showed that different meta-analyses come to different conclusions. Apparently, different countries come to different conclusions. Uh, do you have a comment on that? The suggestion here, by the way, again, for anyone uh, who's not looking at the screen, is that um, Nice and Canadian guidelines no longer recommend pharmacological treatment of mild hypertension. Uh, and the Cleveland Clinic and some others, they were saying, find no evidence to treat to a particular target. So that's kind of some of the stuff uh, that Stephen Martin put on the table. Uh, let's see how to go around. And uh, let's also uh, make sure we can get in a bunch more questions. But who wants to go with that first? Uh, uh, Craig, you're the guidelines. <laughs> you're in guidelines, uh, five feet of water there with your guidelines. Um, what do you think about that? Well, certainly this gets at that idea of globalize the evidence but localize the recommendations. So um, I, I think there would be generally more agreement across systematic reviews of what the drugs can and cannot do, what level of blood pressure lowering you can get at certain doses and what kind of translation into decreased um, heart attacks and decreased strokes there would be. Um, but again, you know, how you would apply that to a population and apply it in a given individual um, can vary reasonably from, from locale to locale. So the fact that um, NICE has different guidelines in England than we might have here in JNC8 um, isn't particularly surprising. And also, um, again, I wasn't on JNC8, but, um, you know, there in these guidelines, there has, n has never been... Um, a push to jump immediately to medications without first trying lifestyle treatments like changes in diet and exercise and weight loss first. And the drug treatment is usually if those things have failed or if we're starting from very high levels of blood pressure. So I don't think that these things are mutually exclusive and that we're saying wildly different things, but seeing some variation um, from you know region to region um, is certainly something that's understandable. Thanks. Okay. Well, let me ask, uh, there's a bunch of different things. Somebody is asking, any insight on whether pulse wave velocity measure could eventually be the HbA1c of hypertension? Um, I don't know if, if we're looking for a, uh, a kind of silver bullet here or not. Any thoughts about that? Go ahead. Is there, I'll, I'll take a quick one on that one. I think there are various measures. Um, pulse wave velocity just in part reflects how stiff uh, the, the vessels are in response, and it's starting to get at that idea of how much end organ involvement is happening here. 
Um, another measure, simple things like left ventricular hypertrophy or thickening of the left ventricle starts to give you signals that, in fact, the blood pressure for this individual, at least, is having an effect on uh, the end organs, uh, creating clearance. Others sort of get at these uh, sort of things. But they're in this case, unfortunately, unlike a biochemical marker, they're looking at at all when damage is already done and sometimes over years. So it's it's probably imperfect to where we're going towards. Don? I was actually struck oh, by some ahead. of the questions that were on the, the Please. coming up with regards to um, the care team. Yeah. And I just would have to recommend or, or compliment the, the, the questioners about that. I think it's really wonderful that people are bringing up these issues more quickly. Um, Kaiser and other systems have shown very well that uh, control of things like high blood pressure isn't only a job between the patient and the physician, but nowadays involves pharmacists, uh, even uh, healthcare workers in the field. There's a huge uh, team approach to treating uh, disorders in particular like high blood pressure. Okay, Don? Well, I was going to actually carry that a step further and Mm -hmm. say we've been talking pretty much from a medical model here and what the primary care physician or the medical home can do. Uh, I'm I'm just wondering, you know, given the fact that uh, a lot of the people who are suffering from high blood pressure, perhaps silently, are either poor or even more likely uh, from from the black population where we know blood pressure is a higher risk and and the sequelae occur earlier and more frequently, are there community solutions? Uh, Can you talk a little bit about what the barbershop or the hairstylist can do? Uh, uh, What can we do outside of, in other words, of our medical model? Thanks, Don. And, you know, I I do want to just pipe in and say quickly, we're aware that a lot of communities uh, in Memphis and elsewhere um, are trying to, you know, wrap their arms around this through churches and and other things. So if anybody um, has experience with that or, you know, is is paying attention to that, uh, feel free. Peter? Sure. Uh, Thank you. Yes. At MedStar Health, we have an initiative that a a colleague who is uh, doing the community outreach part of Million Hearts uh, is helping to conduct called uh, Hair, Heart, and Health, and it's specifically targeted uh, to African-American communities and barbershops in particular, which tend to be uh, one uh, very common uh, uh, site for people to gather and for trusted conversations to occur outside of the medical realm. Of course, uh, the other uh, uh, area would be church. And the conversations and activities are around diet, activity, weight, and and also checking blood pressure. So we have uh, uh, lay people who are, are uh, not medically trained per se, but trained to take blood pressures as screeners and uh, encouraging people um, to have their blood pressure checked regularly and recheck it if it's high. And then if uh, the individual doesn't want to communicate that to their doctor, uh, uh, encourages them to do so or sometimes takes the initiative and says, well, I'll do it for you. So it's it's not just the medical team, but it's really the extended uh, um, um, community around the patient. Okay. Yeah, Thanks, that's. Uh, I just want to follow up on that. I think that's a, a very, very important point. You know, instead we could sit here and be well and bemoan the uh, gap we have between where we want to be and where we are now. But these are the creative kind of solutions. Uh, last I checked, uh, physicians in general in the United States aren't very good at taking blood pressures accurately. And, and uh, my hypothesis would be that a well-trained community health worker or somebody in a barbershop or somebody in the church uh, where the patient's actually likely to be can can do that just as well as as a physician in the office. So uh, thank you for that point. Um, we're gonna just uh, have a, we got about well about five more minutes, so we're we'll start to make some wrap up remarks. I did want to uh, throw out there though um, a question Don and I uh, developed together, which is uh, any sign anywhere in the near future that we might start to combine some things. 
things, looking at cholesterol, looking uh, at blood pressure, any other risk, and sort of begin to, uh, dare I say, bundle uh, some of this as opposed to the very, very separated way that the guidelines are now. Yeah, I think you're uh, making a very important point, Madge. It's really about the whole patient and their uh, various risk factors, even if you narrow it to cardiovascular risk. And, uh, you know, there is this tendency to chop the problem up into individual pieces rather than thinking about the whole patient. So uh, that would be great if somebody could comment on that. Yeah, feel free. Who, who would like to take hey. – who's that? Yeah, this is Craig. Oh, go ahead. So uh, there are certainly many people um, interested at a national, at a national and, and then some regional levels at looking at um, – how guideline recommendations might be influenced if we looked across disease states. And so there's um, the common word for this is uh, multiple chronic conditions. And um, basically there are folks from HHS that are looking at this. There's a whole initiative around it. Um, Dr. Cynthia Boyd is a researcher at Johns Hopkins University, an internist who's very involved in this field. At Kaiser Permanente's National Guideline Program, we're working with her um, on kind of guideline development methodologies that might look at how to improve our ability to um, consider multiple conditions when we're making um, clinical recommendations. And I would also say that we've been looking um, across the integrated cardiovascular disease risk reduction space. That's why we kind of combine our thinking about coronary artery disease and diabetes and hypertension and hyperlipidemia um, to have kind of a unified guideline that, that addresses the many ways that someone might reduce their cardiovascular risk. And there are even some pilots going on in our system to look at um, supportive um, information technology that would help you individualize guideline recommendations and even help a patient look at, say, a display that says, these are the seven, eight, or nine things you could do, like stop smoking, take a statin, take an ACE inhibitor, take an aspirin, and this is the likely bang for the buck, if you will, you'd get from each of those interventions and help them kind of prioritize what they would like to do across that. So there's there's a lot of interest um, across the nation um, in guideline developers and delivery systems trying to look at uh, the many things that come across the various disease states and helping patients figure out what makes the most sense for them. Thanks a lot, uh, Craig. And I think what I'll do is we'll go around the horn very quickly. All Those are good uh, uh, forward-looking remarks, Craig, to wrap up on. And I really thank you again for your participation. Eric, uh, any any kind of final uh, thoughts? I know it's true. It's it's very hard to get to all of these questions on the chat. Thank you all. I always love it, of course, when people address one another. Lucille Taylor, it's okay that you joined late. We'll make sure uh, that you don't miss a thing, and we'll make sure your point to all the resources. Eric, some final thoughts? No, I think this has been a great session. We've, we begun with the science and, and end with the idea of how do we actually apply it. And I think wrestling with those issues on the sort of that final mile is uh, what IHI and JAMA have, have been about for a while. I think uh, today you've heard our ideas about where we're trying to go with regards to high blood pressure. Um, it will still be a challenge moving forward, uh, but hopefully this new attention that's being paid to these guidelines will in part get us to uh, pay much more attention about are we reaching uh, what we want to a- adequately auto- modifying risk in the long run. Terrific. Thank you so much, Dr. Eric Peterson. Uh, final thoughts from Peter. <laughs> it's so great to have you. Yes, thank you so much. So um, I, I think if people are worried about confusion with new guidelines, really we should just put that out of our minds. Paying attention to blood pressure, paying attention to your patient communication and so forth is really the key. We can't wait for JNC 9 or 10 or new ways to assess blood pressure to take action. So what are a couple of actionable next steps? Well, learn how to take accurate blood pressures, follow published guidelines, make sure you as clinicians know how to do it, staff know how to do it, patients, family members know how to do it. Share information. Every blood, every patient leaving a doctor's office should know his or her blood pressure and blood pressure goal. And where there's confusion about new guidelines, no shocker here, talk about them, explain them. This is, uh, this is what we should be doing. Uh, third, create shared plans with patients. For patients with a high blood pressure reading, don't dismiss it. Uh, say, we have a problem here. I might suggest X, or we have a problem. Here are some options. What works for you? And lastly, pay attention. Stay focused. We as a country should aim for 100% awareness 
of hypertension, and uh, perhaps this is a bit too audacious, but as close to 100% at goal as we can, uh, certainly without violating patient preference or causing side effects. Well, we thank can do better. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Peter, Eric, and Craig, and Don, uh, again. And that word audacious, I'm going to just ask John to throw up a, a quick slide there. Uh, if you could launch an audacious goal for health, what would it be? IHI is doing some crowdsourcing, wondering what's on your minds about an audacious goal for health. And you can tweet that to us at IHI Escape Velocity, or you can do it on our website, um, IHI.org slash Escape Velocity. We'd love to hear your ideas. Maybe it has something to do with blood pressure, of all things, uh, thinking about uh, Peter's uh, global uh, goal there. So thank you all. Thank you for being such a uh, terrific audience today. I want to extend a special thank you to JAMA, its editor-in-chief, Howard Bachner, and deputy editor, Ed Livingston, for all their help. We're going to be back in May with another collaboration with JAMA, and we'd love to know how you found that today as you fill out the survey when you get off uh, the program. Next up on WIHI, we're going to be talking about bright spots for patients with complex needs that could indeed include high blood pressure. That's on March 27th. You'll find that webpage on IHI.org right now. Just a reminder, you can download the chat and the slides we used on our discussion today. If you're confused about any of it, just email IHI, uh, info at IHI.org, and they'll be happy to send you everything we shared. By tomorrow morning, look for the archived page of today's show, audio, all the resources as well. So we've got a great group of people who help make WIHI possible. They include Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rosner, Val Weber, Matt Morris, and Tala. We hope you enjoy some of the music here. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning, and John's going to shout, drown me out here with all the music. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks for joining everyone. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day.